Welcome to Opinion Has It. I'm Elmira Berosli. When the pandemic began, workers in the U.S. lost their jobs in droves. 3,839,000 people filed for unemployment benefits for the very first time. That brings the six-week total over the past six weeks to about 30 million people out of work. I mean, we're talking one in five workers in the United States in the space of six weeks now, out of a job, furloughed or frightened for the future of their jobs. The U.S. unemployment rate reached 14.7% in April. That is the highest it's been since the Great Depression. But as the U.S. starts to reopen, people aren't rushing back to work. Many are even quitting the jobs that they do have. It's being called the Great Resignation. A record number of people are quitting their jobs as pandemic restrictions ease. Now employers are struggling to find the workers they need. Millions of American workers are staying away from the service jobs that actually make America run. That's retail stores and restaurants, truck drivers, you name it. Some view this as a serious problem and blame Joe Biden's administration for implementing what they believe are excessively generous pandemic support policies. Part of the problem is that the government pays folks more to stay home than to go to work. But others argue that the labor shortages might actually be a good thing. In their view, the pandemic has forced a much needed adjustment in a labor market where workers didn't have enough bargaining power. Another way to say labor shortage is just to say worker power. And worker power has been largely missing from the U.S. economy for literally 40 years, if not more. Is the balance of power within the U.S. economy shifting? What would a more worker-friendly equilibrium mean for future growth, productivity, and well-being? Hi, guys. Here to help us answer these questions is Betsy Stevenson. So I have my real recording stuff. Betsy is a professor of public policy and economics at the University of Michigan and served as President Barack Obama's chief economist at the Department of Labor. She joins us from Ann Arbor, Michigan. Betsy, early in the pandemic, there was a sense that we just needed to wait for a vaccine and then life would return back to normal. Economists reinforce this expectation, predicting a quick rebound in spending and hiring. But you say many jobs are gone for good. What did we miss? Well, let's actually step it back a little bit, because I was definitely one of those economists early on that thought if we could just pause everything we get the virus under control and then go back to doing exactly what we were doing before. But the idea of a pause and then go back to what you were doing, that was really a world where we paused, defeated COVID, and got to go back to normal. That wasn't the approach the United States ended up taking. We paused enough to slow the spread of the virus so that our hospitals didn't become overwhelmed, so that we didn't have refrigerator trucks on the streets loading body bags, we did not in any way stop COVID, right? More than a year later, right, we still have COVID raging. And over that 15, 16 months, we've started to change. So we can't pause for a year, two years, three years, and then go back to doing what we were doing before because we've had a lot of growth and a lot of change. And there's going to be new things that we've learned, new things that we've considered, and new habits that we've formed. And so I think that when you heard those economists saying, 
pause, and then we'll go back to doing exactly what we were doing before. I think they thought it was going to be a lot shorter. And I think we now realize that, you know, COVID's probably not going to be defeated anytime in 2021. And so we are forming new patterns of behavior, and that's what's shaping what industries are are going to thrive and which ones are not going to probably come back as big as they were before. But whether industries are coming back seems to be only part of the question. I'm constantly seeing reports of businesses complaining that they're trying to attract workers but can't, particularly in the hospitality industry. Why aren't workers taking the jobs that are being offered? First of all, let's start with the hospitality sector, Um, because you're certainly hearing a ton of whining about it. But I would like to point out that 2.5 million jobs have been added back in hospitality. And if you just look at the job growth we had last month, more than half of the jobs in the private sector were jobs in leisure and hospitality. So they are coming back. The thing I think that's really irritating the employers is people want to be paid more. And this this comes out of sort of standard economic theory. What you have to be paid is going to be a function of the amenities or disamenities of the job, meaning if the job's really fun, you might have to be paid a little bit less. And if the job's really awful, you might have to be paid a bit more. Well, what happened to these leisure and hospitality jobs? They became more awful. I mean, I open up the paper, I open up Twitter, I open up all social media, and I hear people complaining that customers have never been ruder, that it's a miserable time to be working in leisure and hospitality. Why do people want a job where they're going to be harassed, where someone's going to make fun of them from wearing a mask or tell them that they're a terrible person or a traitor or not a patriot or where someone might purposely try to give them COVID by spitting on them. We've seen all sorts of horribleness. And the reality is that hospitality workers, leisure and hospitality workers, by coming into contact with a ton of people in person, they are at a greater risk now of catching a disease that we know has the potential for long-term consequences, not just death. So we've made this job riskier in terms of your health and less pleasant in terms of interacting with customers. And then employers are saying, why do people want to be paid more for this? Well, it shouldn't be a surprise. Like, the job got worse. People need more money to do this worse job. The health risks Betsy describes are becoming increasingly acute as the Delta variant fuels new outbreaks. The Delta variant is exploding across the U.S. During a Senate hearing Tuesday, the head of the CDC warned areas with low vaccine coverage are, quote, allowing for the rapid spread of this more contagious strain. 47 states reporting an increase in cases. The daily average tripled in the last month. But the health risks and worsening treatment by customers aren't the only factors that are affecting workers' willingness to take the jobs being offered. For many Americans, options for childcare remain severely limited. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says nearly 2 million women have not returned to the workforce because of caretaker duties, including childcare. Experts say the number of licensed childcare providers is down 13% since the start of the pandemic. The number of people working in the industry is also down. 16 percent. 
At the same time, many households have accumulated savings during the pandemic, giving them a financial cushion. 46% of folks describe themselves as more of a saver compared to prior to COVID. Only 13% say their monthly spending has gone up. And for much of the last year and a half, workers have enjoyed significantly expanded unemployment benefits. But now many U.S. states are ending those extra benefits as well as other pandemic support programs. They hope this will force people back to work. A debate now has been raging in recent weeks on whether extended unemployment benefits provided in the latest stimulus deal are keeping some Americans from getting back to work. A growing number of Republican-led states will be ending increased unemployment benefits. Over the next few weeks, a total of 25 states will stop delivering the extra $300 a week offered by the federal government, and more states could decide to follow suit. But Betsy says this effort to force people back to work misses the bigger picture. I don't think when you roll back those benefits, we're going to see people running to take those leisure and hospitality jobs. I do think you're going to be pulling that money out of the economy. So a lot of pe people who are who are using that to pay their rent, who are using that extra money to buy food, well, they're not going to be paying their rent. They're not going to be buying food. That has a negative impact on the economy. And then the question is, did I force them back to work? I don't know. I just don't think that most people are sitting there thinking it's this 300 bucks a week that's keeping me from taking that waitressing job or that job cleaning houses or that job working in retail. I think what's happened is a lot of people struggled through these in-person jobs through the pandemic because they didn't feel like they had any choice. And I think there's a lot of people who've now gotten to the other side of this who've taken a deep breath and said, Okay, financially, I'm not scared anymore. And I think there's going to be a ton of jobs coming in the future. So I don't need to take this crappy job. I'm going to look for something else. Maybe I'm going to get some training and try to get a job where I don't have to interact with people who are going to be rude to me. So it's that that I think is playing a much bigger role than people sitting at home thinking, while I'm collecting my $300, I'm not going to take this job. But the second they take away from it, take it away from me, I'm going to jump up and go take that crappy job at the old crappy wages they were offering me. We're down, we're still down roughly 10 million workers compared to where we would be right now if we hadn't had a pandemic. 10 million people are not looking at that 300 bucks a week and saying, oh, yeah, this is it. This is all I need for the good life. So what's happening is somebody out there doesn't have any child care and they don't feel like there's anything they can do. So they're staying at home to look after their kid. Somebody else out there has got maybe immune compromised, maybe still worried. Maybe they developed some anxiety issues and some phobias because of this past year and a half. And they're a little bit terrified of taking a job where they work with people. There's, you know, people out there that it took them, you know, a year into the pandemic before they realized I have really got to get my life together and get a new training program and get myself ready for a career that's not going to expose me to health problems. And they're in the middle of doing that. People are thinking about what they want to do. So all those things are going on. And what we have is a big national debate over a small sliver of people who are collecting unemployment insurance and thinking this might be enough for me. So what would you tell someone who's feeling this pressure to take a job right now? You don't need to be in a rush to take a job. You know, you haven't seen your family in a year. Go see them because there will be jobs when you get back in two weeks. 
in a coming out of a normal recession, you know, you see jobs start being added back, but you don't know if that's going to end. You don't know where the next job's going to come from. And so when somebody offers you that job and you're you're like, "Oh, but I was just about to go take a vacation with my family." You think, oh, "I better take the job instead cuz who knows whether I'll get another one." I think right now people feel really confident that, I don't know, there'll be another job out there. We're going to keep growing. Like the recovery is going to keep on. We're going to keep adding jobs because we're coming out of the pandemic. And the pandemic will become a smaller and smaller and smaller part of the macro economy over the next several months. So you don't need to be in a hurry up and take it attitude. And I think that's slowing a lot of workers down. And I think that that's hard for a lot of policymakers and economists to think about because we've just never been in that situation before. As Betsy notes, today's worker shortages reflect a labor market adjustment, which should ultimately benefit workers. And it isn't only the unemployed who are driving change. In many industries, the pandemic ushered in a new era of remote work. Pajamas, a laptop, and a comfortable couch at home. Every day is casual as tens of millions of us work from home, while offices sit largely empty from California to Connecticut and every state in between. It was a far-fetched dream until the pandemic made it a reality. Companies have been forced to embrace remote working to limit the spread of COVID-19. While some miss the office, a large share of workers would rather change jobs than go back. A May survey of 1,000 U.S. adults showed that 39% would consider quitting if their employers weren't flexible about remote work. Now, employers are under pressure to change their approach to workers and workplaces. So let me ask you about incentives. We're starting to hear about employers providing partial work-from-home options or raising wages. Applebee's is giving free appetizers to anybody who shows up for an interview. To what extent do the responses so far reflect workers' changing demands? <laughs> the free appetizers just cracks me up because I just, like, can you imagine being so sort of flaky that you're like, oh, I really do feel like some free hot spinach dip. I think Applebee's has that. Maybe I'll go in and listen to their pitch about a job <laughs> and then that actually convincing you to take a job. Mm, this appetizer is so delicious. It's affecting my rational cognitive thoughts. So now I'm going to have this job at Applebee's. It sounds like a Hail Mary to me. <laughs> but maybe they're hoping that you come in and you realize that you'll like the coworkers. So we started talking about... Um, you know, part of what's happened is I think people think these jobs are really, really bad right now. And so if you offer somebody like, you know, come in and get free appetizers, maybe you'll come in and think, oh, Applebee's does seem fun. You know, I I described this to someone as the we've entered the take this job and shove it phase of the pandemic. And what I do think there is this great reassessment going on. And I think that's happening across all sorts of jobs where people are asking, do I want to do this? So do I want to work long hours? Do I want to do this kind of work? Do I want to travel and be on the road all the time? Do I want to be away from my family? What is it that I want to do? And I think particularly as people are being called back into the office, then they're asking, gee, do I, do I want to go into an office every day? Do I want this kind of commute? And all of those things are leading people to quit and try to find something different. 
we all come to these points in our life where you're, you're asked to stop and think. Or maybe you have that birthday, you know, that birthday that makes you go, oh, my God, how did I get this old? So I better stop. Is my life on the right track? Am I doing what I want to do? Am I being who I wanted to be? And those moments cause you to reevaluate, maybe to quit your job and try something different. Well, right now, those moments are normally individual moments. Right now, we just had a collective moment. The pandemic has caused us collectively to ask, am I on the right track? And so what we're seeing is a nation of people having to, like, reconcile that, you know, that uh, that moment where you stop and say, I need to take stock. We just all did it at once. And a lot of us, our stock taking has led us to say it's time to quit. So there are fears that even if workers manage to get deals that actually reflect their wants and needs, their position will weaken over time. So work from home is one example. Companies could start hiring more people as contractors or freelancers who have less job security and fewer benefits. How concerned are you about these risks? When we think about like freelance work, we've already that movement has been underway for decades now. And Partially, we have some legal restrictions around what it means to be an independent contractor and what it means to be an employee. So so some of that is guardrails that will be set by public policy. Some of it, though, is really, again, about attracting workers. So we want to think about how much bargaining power workers have and how much bargaining power employers have. So the thing that worries me most is an increase in market concentration that gives more bargaining power to the employers than to the employees. And I think that's one of the things that has meant that, you know, we just haven't seen a lot of upward wage pressure at the bottom of the income distribution, the bottom even half of the income distribution for the last several decades is because we're seeing that increasing concentration going hand in hand with, you know, even though the economy's growing, things are getting bigger, we're making more money, people are, be, you know, productivity's going up. It's becoming more and more concentrated, so there are fewer people to go to. And then businesses have actually explicitly tried to concentrate the market by asking employees to sign non-compete agreements. And we've seen that trickle down to even, you know, some of the lowest wage workers. You know, you have sandwich shops asking you to sign a non-compete. So if you leave their sandwich shop, you can't go and make sandwiches somewhere else. And if you can't go make sandwiches somewhere else, then your bargaining power is going to be a lot lower. It's really important to realize that bargaining power is all about your next best option. And... What a lot of companies have been trying to do is make sure that their workers' next best option is not that good. And that's what allows companies to make a lot more money off of people. And the more that you've got a great next best option, well, you know, the easier it is for you to make sure that you get the security and the benefits and all those things that you want. And it's an important thing to realize, like, up and down the income distribution Most wage gains come from changing jobs, not from getting more money from the same boss. Another phenomenon that threatens to erode worker power is automation. 
Already, companies in some industries are turning to robots to address labor shortages. This trend began after the 2008 global financial crisis, but the pandemic accelerated it. An army of robots being unleashed now, and the mission? Stop the spread of COVID-19. Restaurants are turning to robots in places they can't use human employees. Robots are being utilized in new ways during the pandemic, from disinfecting public areas to delivering food in a restaurant. Add to that the end of pandemic support policies and worker power could be significantly eroded in the short run. Well, I think the problem with automation is it's going to take tasks. So let's not talk about jobs. Let's talk about jobs as being a collection of tasks that you do. And automation is going to take some of your tasks away. And then the question is, are you left with enough tasks that you're to do, that you do, not the AI, that your employer still wants to hire you? And for some people, they're just not going to have enough specialized tasks that they're going to be able to hang on to a job. And so that means retraining That means readjusting. That means trying to find something different to do. It can be really, really disruptive in the short run. And, you know, the way I like to explain this to my students is I'm like, you know, it took me a long time to realize whenever I listened to economists describe like the Industrial Revolution, they always talked about it as this like amazingly positive thing. It improved, you know, well-being of human populations around the globe. Like we are richer and better off because of the Industrial Revolution. And I was like, I don't know, though. I I read a lot of Charles Dickens, and he seemed to describe a lot of misery in London during the (laughs) Industrial Revolution. So, like, the economists and Dickens are seeing, like, two different things. And that's when I realized, like, oh, Dickens was talking about the short run. And the economists just gloss over that and get straight to the long run. And in the long run, anything that really boosts productivity is great, right? Because... What I want to be able to do is more with less. If you gave me a technology that allowed me to do exactly what I do in my business, in my workday right now, 50% faster, I would love it. I would watch some TV, I think. I would exercise more. I'd spend some more time with my children. Like, I could, I'd get excited just thinking about what I would do with the time, and it wouldn't be work more. (laughs) So for me, I I could imagine that being really, really exciting, but... What if what it did was actually just took my job because I didn't have enough left that I could do, right? So, you know, if AI comes along and all the things that I do are basically done by AI and I have nothing left to do, maybe I become redundant. Maybe the person who owns the AI that now does what I used to do, they're super rich because they're able to do everything that I was doing plus everything somebody else was doing. So they're great, and I'm not. There's a distributional aspect. So David Otter, who has done a lot of work on this, once said, if the robots take your job, it's not an income problem. It's a distribution problem. And I think that's really the way to think about AI is particularly in the short run, it's not an income problem, but we have a massive distribution problem. You know, one of the clearest examples of this would be to think about self-driving cars or self-driving trucks. And, you know, the number one job for men with only a high school degree in every state in the United States is truck driving. Well, what happens when we get self-driving technology? So one of the first things that's going to happen is it's going to make it easier for them to do uh, longer trips because it won't take as much out of them. But what if it became then fully autonomous 
And you didn't need them at all. Well, if they own, if each truck driver owns the fully autonomous truck, and now they're sitting at home and they are sending their truck out to do the runs for them and just sort of manning it from a computer, then this isn't a bad deal for them, right? This is like me having my, being able to do my work with less time. But what's more likely to happen? Is each driver likely to end up with their own autonomous vehicle that they get to man themselves? No. It's more likely that there's some company that's going to come in with all of these uh, self-driving trucks, and they're going to have a bunch of investors behind them, and all those guys are going to make all the money from the self-driving trucks, and they're going to lay off the truck drivers who are going to have, like, no claim on that new technological improvement, and they're going to end up having to retrain for some other kind of job while the people who invested in self-driving get rich off it. So that's what I mean when I say it's not an income problem. There's just as much income being generated. It's just now going to the owners of the capital rather than the labor, the people who are driving the truck. And in the short run, those guys, it's going to be really hard to retrain them all. And what about in the long run? What happens to these truck drivers and their families? In the long run you know, their children or their children's children will find something different to do. And in the long run, what we typically see is that technological change makes us all richer and therefore raises, you know, our life expectancy, raises our standard of living. But what we have seen over the last 50 years is a rise in income inequality. And so it's not clear that AI is going to lift every boat unless we actually take action as a society, through the social contract, through our public policy, to make sure that we solve the income distribution problem. People have been thinking about this problem for decades. In 1930, John Maynard Keynes predicted that his grandchildren would work just 15 hours a week. Machines and new technology would cover the rest. This vision seems to be closer than ever to becoming a reality. It's Friday! Well, now some workers could be saying, TGIT, it doesn't go the same ring. Thank God it's Friday. If their bosses follow an example from Iceland where researchers found working fewer hours boosted productivity, lending more support to the four-day week. A number of other trials are now being run across the world, including Spain. The country's about to trial a reduction in working hours. Employees won't have their wages cut, and the government is contributing 50 million euros to the project. Several large companies in the U.S., such as Deloitte, KPMG, and Ryan, already offer four-day work weeks. But while such initiatives can make a difference, Betsy says that policy can take us only so far. Individuals and societies will need to rethink their relationship to work. You know, we're in sort of a weird situation right now where we have the highest earners work the most. They work a lot of hours. That's kind of unusual. Historically, that's not what happened. Remember, we used to have this thing called the leisure class. The leisure class was not the low income. The leisure class was the high income. And now it's flipped on its head where, in the United States at least, the leisure class are low-income individuals who have very sporadic attachment to jobs. Now, you might, like, some, you might bristle at calling it the leisure class because it's, it's not a life of fun and joy, but they have a lot of time. And then you look at these high-earning individuals and they are working nonstop. I think a lot of people are starting to question that equilibrium, but it's tough because it some of it is actually driven, you know, by individuals who want to get ahead. 
And we've gotten this situation where there's a lot of jobs that demand your whole life. And my optimistic take on the pandemic is I hope that a lot of people just say, huh, I'm not sure I want to give my whole life to my job. And then we need to collectively say, four-day work week sounds great. We need to collectively say, I want to take leave when I have a baby. <laughs> right? We need to be collectively saying this is how, as a society, we're going to structure our lives. I don't know how we change it unless we actually all believe in it, as well as maybe coordinate it through legislation. In other words, I'm not sure that the heavy-handed government can get people to work less without people deciding collectively as a society that's the kind of world we want. But as we've discussed, automation and AI could reduce working hours regardless of whether society is ready for it or not. How do we prepare for this kind of future, especially in a world where most people view work as a source of purpose? It's not just you know, getting a paycheck. You know, I, I think what what and how we want to work and how we want to interact with technology is going to change things going forward. I think it's really important that we're not afraid of AI, but I do think it's going to be important that we have a stronger social contract than the one we have right now. I, I my My biggest concern is actually government failure because AI could move very rapidly we could have large amounts of people who are very skilled, who have been doing really useful work for a large chunk of their life, who become unmoored and don't see where they fit into society because AI just took what they did. And I think that could be very, very disruptive if we don't find some kind of place for them. And I don't think that's just about making sure that they can eat but maybe also making sure that there's a way they find, feel valued. Maybe we need, you know, to think about a domestic job core for older workers where we can find ways in which they can be valuable in the community when they find themselves unable to go back to what they were doing before. And I think one of the things that the pandemic has done is we've seen the biggest exit of older workers from the labor force that we've seen in any recession. Um, I think that people being afraid of getting sick led to a lot of early retirements. A lot of companies, rather than laying people off, gave these buyout packages. What do we do as a society when a large number of people don't have very specific work they can do anymore? And I think now's the right time for us to be thinking about it, because if we can solve that problem for all these people who just retired early, then we can use that as a model as we start to see people lose their jobs from AI. Betsy, thank you so much. It's great talking with you today. That was Betsy Stevenson, a professor of public policy and economics at the University of Michigan. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you think about it. Please rate and review our podcast. Better yet, subscribe on your favorite listening app. You can also follow us on Twitter by searching for at ProSyn. That's P-R-O-S-Y-N. Until next time, I'm Elmira Bayrosley. Opinion Has It is produced and edited by Kasha Brasalian. Special thanks to Project Syndicate editors Whitney Arana and Jonathan Stein.